Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Everyone has something to be disappointed about. The Trump supporters have lost their president. They've lost their megaphone. The Democrats have lost seats in the House. They've lost uh, state legislatures. They've got a 6-3 Supreme Court against them, and they probably uh, still don't have the Senate. So this is an outcome that should make you think the only way we can do anything is if we start to work together at least a little. That's Ian Bremmer. He's the founder and president of Eurasia Group, a leading global political risk and research firm. He's also the president of G Zero Media, a company whose mission is to make sense of global news. Bremer's firm puts out an annual list of the top risks threatening our world. He joined me in January to discuss the number one risk in 2020. What was that? A contested presidential election in the United States where one of the candidates does not accept the outcome. Well, here we are. Now that Ian's prediction has come true, he joins me again to discuss this historic election, the consequences of a contested transition, and where we go from here. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user Funny Once a Day. That could also describe a lot of people I know. The question is, what are the possible professional repercussions for lawyers working with the Trump team right now is, quote, and then I work to undermine democracy, end quote, the kind of thing that one puts on one's CV, hashtag Aspreet. So that's an interesting question that I struggle with as a lawyer and as I think about the ethics of the profession and also the business model of the profession. I, I presume that you, funny once a day, are asking the question because there has been some reporting on the Lincoln Project, a group of conservatives who were never Trumpers, don't support the president, and have actively tried to get him defeated at the polls. And they are working hard to bring attention to the fact, negative attention to the fact that a very prominent national law firm named Jones Day has been representing the president and his campaign in some of these efforts in Pennsylvania and elsewhere to overturn the results. So it has received wisdom in the legal community and I think in the country and an important value that everyone deserves representation. That's certainly true in criminal cases, whether you can afford one or not. It's an important legal tradition in this country, not to conflate the lawyer for the client or the lawyer for the client's cause. And clients who have been unpopular, whether they've committed crimes, whether they've committed acts of terrorism, whether they've even committed acts of treason, 
like the famous case of John Adams representing a redcoat back during the time of the Revolutionary War, that lawyers can honorably represent clients, even if they disagree with them, even if they dislike them. And many lawyers, in fact, dislike their clients. But here are a couple of things that I think about when you raise this issue. One is whether you can rightly criticize somebody as a lawyer for representing a particular client. That's one issue. And I think if a lawyer wants to represent someone, they can. And if a lawyer doesn't want to represent someone, they can. And people draw lines all the time, arbitrarily or not. Famous criminal defense lawyer Ben Braffman has been on the Stay Tuned program before, basically will represent anyone other than anyone who has been accused of a crime of terrorism. He's represented murderers, he's represented organized crime figures, but he draws the line there for a particular reason. And I think that that has to be respected. The question of whether or not people should go out of their way to malign a law firm or malign a lawyer because of a particular representation, I'm not sure how I feel about that. So first is the question of the representation itself. But I think second is whether or not a lawyer or a law firm is representing a client, whether odious or not odious, by bringing arguments that are dishonorable or arguments that are false. And in this context, the claim is arguments that are undermining democracy. I think that's a more difficult question. And so it may be the case, as we've been reading about, that Donald Trump has had a hard time expanding his legal team and getting more people to represent him in some of these election matters. Not that people resist representing Donald Trump, because he, in some quarters and in elite circles, if I may say that, is a controversial figure. But maybe it's the case they don't see how they can make plausible arguments in an honorable way that befits their legal reputations in that elite community. The other distinction I'll make, and maybe not everyone will make this, is a difference between the standards to which you hold private lawyers in private practice versus lawyers who are acting in the public interest and whose salaries we pay. So for example, I always thought that in the U.S. Attorney's Office and in the Department of Justice, you hold those lawyers to a higher standard. Everyone is supposed to be candid with the court, but particularly those lawyers. And particularly those lawyers should not be making specious arguments, should not be making arguments they don't believe in, even as they aggressively prosecute cases or aggressively defend lawsuits brought against the United States. Obviously, defense lawyers and private sector lawyers should aspire to do the same because they've all sworn an oath and they're all officers of the court. But in our system, they're allowed a little more leeway. So what private lawyers do is one thing, but lawyers who've worked, for example, in the Department of Justice, and as another example, in the White House Counsel's Office, I think should be held to a stricter standard. And repercussions for lawyers who have made dishonorable arguments and specious arguments that are laughable, and some of those kinds of arguments have been made by this White House counsel currently serving. And whether or not law firms care about that in the future, I think they should consider it. I think they should weigh it in making employment decisions. But overall, a campaign to denigrate a law firm, I, I don't love it. I have mixed feelings about it. And I understand that other people may have a different view. This question comes in an email from Amanda. Does it matter if the president refuses to concede? Is there a legal or legislative way to declare that the outcome of the election has been officially decided independent of a concession? If there is, what is it? So that, that's a good question, and I think one that's been on lots of people's minds. So with respect to your first question, does it matter if the president refuses to concede? I think it matters politically. I think it matters optically in a few ways. One, it makes the president look ridiculous. It makes the president look peevish. It makes the president look immature. But of course, we knew all those things about the president already. If the question is, does it matter legally? No, it does not. I think the Biden campaign and president-elect Biden, and I say that very deliberately, has tried to make the point that whether you concede or not, the election results are what govern. When you ask, is there a legal or legislative way to declare the outcome? Obviously, that's going to happen. 
on a timetable that Ann Milgram and I discussed and that other people have been discussing when the electors meet and their certifications of votes in various states. So that is formal and official. That doesn't happen until sometime in December. If the question is, can Joe Biden get some kind of official declaration in the absence of a concession before that, I think it's unlikely. And for the most part, it doesn't really matter, except in one particular. And that is for Joe Biden and his team to get access to the proper materials to conduct an appropriate transition process. And under our system, funding for staff and for offices and the process by which transition takes place generally happens in our system when whoever the head of the GSA is, the General Services Administration, makes a determination that the winner is evident. And most of the time, all doubt is erased when one party or the other concedes. Then you don't have to worry about the count. Then you don't have to worry about the official declarations. Then you don't have to, you don't have to worry about the electoral vote. In this case, because of the absence of that, there's a bit of discretion that the GSA administrator has, Emily Murphy, to decide whether or not it's evident. There's political pressure not to say that it is evident because the president refuses to acknowledge it. And most of the Republican senators in our country also refuse to acknowledge it. There has been some suggestion that Biden could go to the courts. And I don't know exactly what the legal theory would be, but since there's some statutory structure and regulatory structure here, they could sue on the basis that it is evident who the winner is and unlock those funds and unlock that office space. I think there's some considerations that weigh against that, probably overwhelmingly, probably very substantially. One is that takes time. And you know we only have a few weeks left until the inauguration and obviously less time until these certifications happen. So it might be a futile cause anyway. And if you bring such an action, you don't want to lose. And you never know what happens in court, given how much discretion the GSA administrator has. And it's also probably the case that you don't want to give any credit to the argument, which you may indirectly be doing by saying this is worthy of a court case. You don't want to give credit to the argument that the president has not lost. So it's an unfortunate situation. While the president continues to have his tantrum, claiming he won when he did not. The last point I would make about why it matters that the president refuses to concede, it's bad for the country. And it's bad for efforts to unify the country if he never concedes, because it allows people who don't like Biden, didn't vote for Biden, to kind of bathe in this discontent, not just over the fact that their preferred candidate lost, but also that he was robbed, when in fact he was not. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
Ian Bremmer is my guest this week. He's the founder and president of Eurasia Group, a global political risk and research firm. Ian is no stranger to stay tuned. This is his record-setting fourth appearance. Today we discuss his ominous prediction from January that one presidential candidate would not accept the outcome of the election. We also talk about the divisiveness of our politics, America's standing in the world, and what a Biden foreign policy doctrine might look like. Ian Bremmer, welcome back to the show. Preach. So good to be back with you. May I um, bequeath an honor upon you? Really? Yeah. Okay, sure. We can start with that. You may not know what it is. I have no idea. No, I don't know. So I've been doing Stay Tuned for over three years. I've had a lot of guests. Sounds about right. Yeah. You are now the most accomplished guest in terms of frequency on the show. You were the first person to be on the show four times. How do you feel about that? Wow, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, I, I did not know that. I assumed that you had favorites that you kind of went back to the well frequently with. So I was trying to think like what, what this makes you in sort of the pantheon of broadcasting. And it occurs to me, you are to stay tuned, kind of like what Regis Philbin was to David Letterman. Is that fair? That, that's pretty, that's pretty exceptional. That's pretty on point. <laughs> May he rest in peace. Can, can you do a Regis Philbin for us? I, I, I no, no, I can't um, no? because I never watched him. Uh, I know I probably should have, but I didn't because he was, he, he related right to an audience that was um, both awake and watching television at a time when you and I are not able to do that. <laughs> I don't know why you're speaking for me. Because <laughs> because misery loves company. Created. <laughs> it just it's much better if we can like immediately create this kinship. We've been if we've been on four times together. People need to understand that the major reason for it is because of this odd couple type dynamic that we have. Yeah. Well, good thing we didn't have the tape rolling before this moment because because you know, sometimes, you can tell sometimes people why sometimes. you refuse to put your video on <laughs> because you're dressed right, inappropriately for look, the podcast. Look, we're in the middle of a crisis. Yeah, Yeah, which people are probably wondering, like, why are they talking about this nonsense when there are very important things to talk about? And I will say we do need a little nonsense. We do. I mean, like over the course of this whole thing, we'll do at least a little nonsense. It's important to keep. No, I think it's very important. Every once in a while I get scolded, you know, for making a joke. And by the way, that hellscape that you and I both participate in called the Twitter. Yes. That's the place I think to be a little silly sometimes. <laughs> it, it, I completely agree. People take themselves way too seriously. Did you see that I dunked on myself that last week and it was it was awesome? No, I think I missed that. Did you really? Well, remind me. <laughs> it's because like half an hour after the uh, after the election was called for Joe Biden, I put out this what I thought was you know kind of nice message. Oh no, we're going to talk about that. We're going to oh, talk we are? about that. Yes. Okay. Okay. Fair nice enough. message you of what everyone should. You oh saw no, I 100% saw it. I didn't know that you consider that dunking on it. No, we're going to talk about that at okay, some length. Okay, fine. Oh yeah, Mr. good. Mr. Bremer. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so. Good breed. So we had you on at the beginning of the year yeah. because you do this report about risk, global risk. And then we had you on again at the beginning of the pandemic to see how the spreading deadly virus was affecting your assessment of risk in the world and in the United States. And to remind people who may not have listened before, and will explain why I was excited to have you on now, right after the election was called, was the number one risk that we have discussed before in your report was a close political election in the United States. And we'll talk about all the ways in which that will cause trouble. But I guess my first question is, I don't want to assume anything. Was this election, in fact, close? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it had been a little closer, we'd be in very serious trouble right now. 
And as you know, there are a lot of people out there that think we are in very serious trouble right now. I, I'm not one of them. I'm not alarmist. Um, but the risk, the number one risk, it was called rigged. And the idea was that you have a close election and the loser refuses to concede. And that delegitimizes the process. That was back in January. You and I had that conversation. And uh, I mean, it's pretty clear right now that, you know, we're in fairly unprecedented territory, as, you know, one often says when, when you're looking at the Trump administration, in the sense that, I mean, the election has been called. But, you know, we've we've just seen the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, saying there will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. You've never seen a secretary of state say something like that. You never I mean, Trump, you saw Trump's um, speech that he gave where he said, I won the election. No, no, he actually has not won the election. And um, there are a lot of people out there that actually believe, a lot of Republicans out there that support Trump that actually believe that this election was stolen away from him. And uh, that probably reflects some strength that Trump will have in the future when he's no longer president, but it also causes problems for our institutions in the U.S. But can I push back on this issue of whether or not the election was close for, for a moment? Of course. Yeah, Play sure. devil's advocate. So yeah. it looks like when all the votes are counted that Joe Biden probably will have 306 electoral college votes. Yep. And the popular vote by anywhere between five and seven million votes Donald Trump won 306 electoral votes last time, and he called that a landslide, and his supporters call that a landslide. So, which is well, for, so two things you've just done, which are strange. One is you imputed consistency for President Trump, <laughs> which is unnecessary. Yes. I mean, we know that. And the second is you talked about the popular vote as if that's a thing. Well, isn't it a little bit of a thing? I mean, I'd like it to be, but it has nothing to do It would be a thing in the, the other direction. It would be a thing if Donald Trump had won the popular vote and Joe Biden just eked it out in the electoral college. I mean, it it'd be a thing in other countries, thing. right? I mean, other democracies, it's frequently a thing. Uh, in the United States, as you know, it's not as much of a thing. So what's your definition of close? What's your definition of close? Well, so when, when I say it's a close election, um, what I mean is it- You really it mean has, contested, not necessarily close. No, um, I, I mean, I mean both. It's not close enough um, that the contestation can be effective in my view, and that's really important, but it's pretty close. What do I mean by close? Um, I mean, it's down to a few swing states, right? That's what we're looking at. Um, some of those swing states have margins that are reasonably tight. And while the Democrats have taken the presidency, the Republicans have done quite well in every other aspect. I mean, so in other words, this was not a blue wave. It's hard to describe this even as a blue ripple. I mean, if I'm a Republican, as you know, I'm not affiliated with a party, but if I were a Republican, I think I'd be pretty happy with this outcome. I mean, just objectively speaking, I think the Republicans end up with um, significant power uh, in some ways more power than the Democrats coming out of uh, this election in January. Can we talk for a second about how people got this wrong? And, you know, you're not a pollster, but you deal in data and analytics a lot. What went wrong? How, how did the predictions and projections generally in the country get it wrong? And then specifically, why was it so wrong in Maine and in other places? And I guess specifically, I want to ask you about something that I know people have been talking about, this sort of Trump voter non-response bias. Yes, completely. What's that about? 
So what's really interesting is, you know, I spend so much of my time not thinking about the U.S., but thinking about the rest of the world. And when you compare the polling error in the United States in this election to polling error in any other major advanced industrial democracy, the U.S. is such a clear outlier. It's so much worse here. And, and you know, it's same polling methodologies, same companies in many cases. Has so that always what, been true or is, that, or is that more recent? It's becoming worse. Yeah. It's becoming worse in the U.S. So why? Why is that? And, and I mean, you know, one obvious reason is because the United States has a larger percentage of the population that feels like the institutions are illegitimate. And those institutions include mainstream media and polling agencies. And so I think you're getting a large percentage of the population, and by large, in some cases, 10, 20%, that simply will not take a call from a polling agency that represents a media organization. And they said, well, these people aren't helping me. It's not even a question of lying to them. It's a question of, I will not talk to them. So your sample is automatically skewed to not include many people that are delegitimized. And those people tend to vote much more for anti-establishment candidates. Um, and certainly in 2016 and 2020, we know who that candidate was. But if, if, as a quantitative matter, if that's the diagnosis and you know the degree to which people feel that way, that the system is so broken, they're not going to participate, can you adjust for that I think and it's be really more hard. accurate in the future? Why not? I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard because I don't think you do know how many people um, uh, feel that way. And you don't know how many of them are necessarily voting one way or the other because they're simply not talking to you. It's a black box. It's an absence of data. I mean, your polling um, can be really good in understanding a sample that you have some information from. But if there's a black hole with a part of your sample, I don't, I don't care what methodology you're using, you're not getting at that black hole. Um, and that's a, that's a problem. And so I think the presumption has been all the way through 2016, 2020, if there are people that we're not getting, well, we're just gonna treat them as if they're representative. I, I, there's no other, I mean, you can use judgment, but that judgment is not gonna be informed by data. Do you know people personally who fall into that category? Absolutely, absolutely. My mother used to fall into that category, by the way. And, and why is that? My mother? Yeah, what, what, what you causes- you really want to get into this? Because Well, we don't have to talk right? about your mother. We, well, we can. If you, <laughs> we can. Are you, you know? are you lying down on, on your couch? I saw Not you yet. had a nice couch on the Zoom earlier. I took my shoes off. You took your shoes I could. off? Yeah. I should <laughs> tell were... the audience that, that, that Ian likes to let us know what's going on. And even though we are not on video and only audio, he decided to inform me and the team that he was taking his shoes off. Yeah. The question is, you can make your answer in reference to your mother or not. What is the thing that's been going on in our politics or in our society or in our culture that is causing people to, to almost in a way disenfranchise themselves or at least disassociate themselves from what's going on? Like what has caused them to go over the edge with respect to respect for the system? It's displacement. Um, it's a, a sense that there is no opportunity for themselves or for their kids, that they're forgotten, that the country has moved on. Um, that nobody cares about them. It's reflected in greater suicide rates, in drug addictions. Part of it is, of course, directly economic, and we see that with yawning gap of economic inequality in the U.S. compared to other countries. But it's not just that. It's, you know, um, wars uh, that we fight on the back of the same people um, that aren't successful and they're not treated like heroes when they come back. It's a, a country that's changing quite a bit demographically. We're bringing in a lot of immigrants, whites in America will be a minority by 2045. Um, and, and yet, you know, it's kind of acceptable to be in many circles, to be racist against 
white, rural, undereducated, underclass in the United States in a way that you would never think it was okay. I mean, it's the Barat thing, right? In a way that it would never be okay to make fun of blacks in the US like that or Hispanics or Muslims. And I, I think all of those things together, and you know, people say Trump has been so bad to the base, he's lied. And certainly Trump has, if you look at his regulatory rollback, if you look at his tax policies, he's not drained the swamp at all, right? I mean, he's been great for billionaires. He's been great for you and me economically, and he's been great for big businesses and banks. Wait, are you, are you suggesting that we're billionaires? No, that's why I started with billionaires and then I went <laughs> okay. one step down. It's not down. exclusive, I see. I, I see. mean, Jesus, if you and I like just set up shop someplace, we could buy a really nice house, you know? Could we buy OANN? Well, I don't think we could buy OANN. OANN's gonna be, you know, there's gonna be a com competition for that. It's gonna get more expensive. We could have probably bought it, you know, bought it just before. Before, it. Yeah, right. Now it's, now it's hard. What would we do with it though? We would just troll it. We just buy game it to make shows. fun of it. I think it. we'd make it a game show network. That's not actually a bad idea, right? I think game uh, shows are. I think game shows are going to become more popular now that Alex Trebek has died. No, now that people are turning away from politics once this race is settled. I think I'm like that. Just wanna... felt like such a such a bad coincidence for you to bring that up. No, I didn't, as I'm I didn't still mourning. So am I. Oh, okay. Have, have you ever been a Jeopardy question? Have you? With a knack for explaining complex legal issues with simple language, stay tuned with Preet. Preet being this ex-U.S. attorney. Jonathan. Who is Barara? Good. I've been a crossword puzzle clue twice. I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked a lot of people because it's been sticking in my head since I've had the philosopher Michael Sandel on the show. Part of what you're talking about, he says, is how liberals and progressives have valorized college and made college sort of the holy grail. And it's great. And it, you know, all the statistics show that you have a higher income over your lifetime and longer uh, life expectancy and all of that if you have a college degree, but two thirds of Americans don't get a college degree. That's right, that's and exactly so right. This, this inordinate stress on college and going to college is good, but on the flip side, there's the implication if you don't go to college, you're not worthy and you're not good. And that's terrible. Do you agree with that? And if so, what do we do about that? Uh, yeah, I think it's a big part of the problem. And I also think uh, lack of access to gatekeepers, even if you get into college, but it's not a it's not a first tier or second tier college is becoming a big problem. And I mean, you know, you and I remember you, the varsity blues thing, right? When, I mean, you've got these, these wealthy parents that are doing everything possible to ensure that that wealth continues and that, that connectivity continues. And, you know, you and I didn't have that growing up and that's, uh, and, and a lot of these kids, a lot of these adults will never have anything remotely like that. What do we do about it? We, we're gonna have to really invest in universal lifetime training and education, right? I mean, it's, it's not about teaching people to code and not, not only the fact that, I mean, once AI gets better, coding is gonna be useless, but we have to, we have to treat, teach critical thinking. We, we have to actually improve people's ability to engage in real organizational and management conversations. We have to train them to function in a modern society. And, and that's not necessarily a four-year college degree, but it's very different than forgetting about such a large piece of our population. And this is gonna get so much worse next year because we've just experienced a year of pandemic. And what the one thing we know about pandemic is it has so accelerated the efficiencies of technology companies and the knowledge economy. And if you're not a part of that, you are so f***ed. I wanna talk more about all of this and, and how people are disaffected, but I don't wanna lose sight of 
what we began talking about, and that is why we're in trouble. Are you surprised at all in the aftermath of Biden being projected as the winner that virtually every U.S. senator is taking Trump's side? Did you think that they would, you know, fold it up once that happened? I'm not sure they have. I'm not sure they have. First of all, we've already seen a number of senators, it's not just Mitt Romney, that have already called to congratulate Biden on winning the presidency. But it's that usual suspects. It's Mitt Romney, it's Lisa Murkowski, it's Susan yeah. Collins. Susan Collins. Know. There's a you Ben Sass. I think we've had at yeah. least four, maybe, five, I think five. I think there was one more that said that he may not have called, but he said that uh, the Trump had to start the transition, get that process going. But, but why so, is it more? Is it because they're afraid of Trump? Is it because they're like Trump? Is it because they're trying to protect their own reputations with the base of Trump? Well, I think there are a few things. I mean, first of all, even though the media, including Fox News, has called the outcome, and it was funny because I was on with Maria Bartomarolo the other morning, and well after Fox News had called the outcome, and she starts the interview with saying with me, well, if it turns out that Biden becomes the president, and I just stopped her, I'm like, Maria, as, since we're on your show on Fox News, I, I, I actually think we should go with the call of your company. You know, just, I'm going to just, for the purposes of this interview. And I mean, to give her credit, she didn't try to undermine that or anything, but she just kind of, she had to throw it in because all these people are posturing for Trump himself and for the family. And they want to, they, they, they want to be um, well thought of in, in their graces, right? Um, but no, I, I, I think that we need to understand that where we are right now is that despite the fact that these media companies have called it, Trump has every legal right to contest these outcomes through cases. Well, you know that much better than I do. And, and as that goes on, if you're, a, if you're McConnell, I don't think there's any harm in saying, let's allow those legal cases to proceed. And he will exhaust them in very short order and once he exhausts them, there will be nothing else for him to do. There'll still be some Republicans that stick with him, but I think once the legal process is over, you will have nothing close to the Republicans that would be necessary to effectively try to contest or overturn this outcome, which you know would require eventually well, I hope that's right. the Senate. I, I'm not, I, I feel I'm not quite very confident about that. I feel very um, confident. Look, and there are harms. Notably, yes, right. am among the harms is a delay in transition, yes. a delay in President-elect Biden getting national security briefings. And yep. that's not good. They only well, have 70 only some that, days. But, you know, also just looking like our political system is massively dysfunctional to every other country around the world and making the average American, when I saw a poll yesterday, said 70% of Republicans think the election has been stolen. Like you just, the, the level of divide in the United States right now politically, I think is significantly greater than that of any other major advanced industrial democracy. Europe this year has been moving in the other direction. They've been actually like redistributing income from the wealthy North to the South. I mean, I spoke with the Greek prime minister. He said, we're doing a Marshall plan right now because the Greek, the Germans and, and the, the Dutch and the French are helping us out. That's not what we were talking about 10 years ago when they were almost at Grexit. Uh, and that reduces Euroscepticism. It reduces the polarization, the extremes. In the United States, it's exactly the opposite that's happening. And that hurts our country it hurts the power of our country. It hurts the effectiveness of our institutions. It damages us. And so Trump Trump will not be the president on January 21st, but he is causing more damage. And I think that damage will persist well beyond into the Biden administration. On the spectrum of well-functioning and stable and open democracies, is it true that you would have always placed America in the past at the far end of the spectrum in a good way. What's the past? Well, 
no, 30 years ago. Ah, okay. Yes. 30 years ago, yes. And where do you, where would you place it today? That's a really painful question, Preet, because I, I think if you have a spectrum and let's say, you know, China, Russia, I mean, North Korea, the extreme, but China, Russia on one side of the spectrum, which is strongly authoritarian, closed, illegitimate system, not representative of its people. And on the other side of the spectrum, Canada, Germany, the Nordics, uh, the United States 30 years ago absolutely was solidly in that camp. And today is not. And I mean, significantly has eroded. In the middle would be something like Hungary or Turkey. And we aren't Hungary or Turkey. And so certainly we're not remotely close to being an authoritarian state and all of the people on social media that, that warn about this. And that's not where we are, but we have eroded significantly. Um, and Why? Why? Uh, well, many reasons. I mean, if you look at the, the bureaucracy in the United States and the role that special interests and big money have played in capturing the regulatory process. Um, that, that's one way that the US uh, legitimacy of our institutions has eroded. If you look at the elections um, that have gone, that now take two years and cost billions and billions of dollars, and you know, are re reflected by an electoral college that demographically increasingly is very far from what the people of the United States actually look like and the efforts um, to suppress uh, the vote, to allow for functionally minority rule, that has delegitimized and eroded the process. If you look at just how divided the legislature is and how incapable, even someone like Joe Biden, who's a centrist that would want to be bipartisan, but how incapable he is of reaching out across the aisle to the right, or even reaching out across the aisle effectively come next year to his own left. That's eroded the process, the executive, and how we just had an impeachment process, which, I mean, one Republican voted to convict, and we just had two presidential debates. The word impeachment wasn't mentioned once in either debate. That's an erosion of our institutions. Now, I don't think all of our institutions have eroded dramatically. I don't think the military has, even with Esper and some of his Confederates being thrown out unceremoniously by Trump yesterday. I think the judiciary still is reasonably- Wait, can we talk about that for a second? Sure, but I'm just saying across the board, if you, to answer your question, 2020, you cannot say the United States deserves to be lumped with Germany and Canada and the Nordics and Japan as well-functioning representative democracies. You can't, and when our Secretary of State comes out in the last week and says there have been significant um, irregularities in elections in Myanmar and the Cote d'Ivoire and, and Tanzania, and that we criticize that, like we, we have no credibility. We have no business criticizing the elections. We should let the Canadians do it for a few years, right? We, we just have no business. No people around the world are looking to the US and say, I want my political system to run like that. And that that reflects the answer to your question that we, we can no longer put the United States in this exceptional camp. Where do you put the UK? Has not eroded as far as the United States, but in many ways, uh, again, the role of money in the UK and the political system is dramatically diminished uh, from the United States. But I mean, the mainstream media has become deeply politicized. Social media is incredibly dysfunctional. And, uh, and I think the checks and balances in the UK have become more problematic. You mentioned the firing of Secretary Esper. I've been getting a lot of uh, texts and messages from people 
who are really concerned about what the hell is going on at the Department of Defense. The acting secretary is somebody who folks don't believe is anywhere near qualified. They put in a chief of staff to that person who people have a lot of worries about, you know, party loyalist, not to be sensationalist, but is there any reason at all to be concerned about what's going on at DOD in terms of Donald Trump planning to engage in certain kinds of behavior or erase certain kinds of material or information? Are, are you worried about that at all? Or am let I let me dramatic? ask you, um, in, in terms of level of incoming breathless panic that you're receiving, would you say this is greater, about the same or less than you got when uh, Rick Grinnell was appointed acting head of intelligence? It's of a different nature. It's coming from people who, who know the folks involved uh, personally and know their backgrounds. So it's not you know, dramatic uh, p- people getting the vapors. It's, it's from people who I trust and respect, who again, who are not in freakout mode, but are really sort of you know, raising their eyebrows at, at what kinds of things are going on at DOD in, in, in a way that I have not seen with respect to other things. First of all, I think that the professionalization of the military in the United States is very high and that will remain the case irrespective of who the group of four or five people that are running the DOD are. The Joint Chiefs of Staff, again, absolutely. And you saw the the letter that, that came from them uh, during the, um, the horrible charade um, in Lafayette Square during the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, I, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about you know, engineering or orchestrating a coup. And you see a lot of language like this out there. Um, I, We've normalized I do, all that language, you know, coup, treason, lock them up. Every, you know, we, that's what people just say and, and people don't bat an eye at it anymore. Yeah, John Hodgman wrote me a couple of days ago and said that he thought it was coup cosplay. <laughs> and I, and I, I thought that that was, that was evocative. That was a nice turn of phrase, right? I mean, these are like, you know, it's it's dress up, but it's you're, not. you're saying don't worry about it. I'm saying don't worry about it. I, mean, I, I think that um, the the most credible um, intel I've heard on this is that is substantive um, is that Esper et al um, were refusing uh, Trump's demand to take all troops out of Afghanistan uh, by inauguration, so Trump can say, "I have accomplished this as I promised," um, and uh, and that's what led to the firing. Um, and as you know, there was already a resignation letter, letter that had been written, and I, I'm sure it was written well before that, that was actually leaked. So I want to go back to the issue of why the country is so divided and whether there are two Americas. You know, both Trump and Biden got over 70 million votes. Biden got more. Which is pretty extraordinary. But 70 million, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. And there's a lot of discussion about how Biden supporters need to understand Trump supporters and the Democrats in particular, if they want to win majorities and build coalitions in the future, even though they have won, and even though there's a fairly significant popular vote advantage, that they should do some soul searching and try to understand the other side. And this leads me to, I think, the tweet you were referring to earlier, (laughs) uh, where you wrote, (laughs) quote, now is the time for every Biden supporter to reach out to one person who voted for Trump. By the way, you sent this while people were dancing in jubilation in the streets of the cities of the United States of America. Yeah, unclear the timing was great. I'm with you on that. Yeah, so I'm just going to, you know, just want to give the context for our listeners. Now is the time for every Biden supporter to reach out to one person who voted for Trump. Empathize with them. Tell them you know how they feel. You do, from 2016. Come up with one issue you can agree on. End quote. Explain yourself. 
<laughs> you know, it's it's funny. I mean, here it is. It's funny because I was watching on TV. Yeah. And and I didn't realize you had sent that tweet. And I saw the people dancing in Washington Square Park. And then suddenly hundreds of them picked up their cell phones and I think started to make phone calls to Trump supporters because of your tweet. <laughs> I you saw know, the that. funny thing, so I, I see it and everyone's been waiting, waiting, waiting. We all know for the whole week who's won the election, but no one's making the call. Still waiting. It's all the way through. It's Saturday. Finally, the call, jubilation. Everyone can let out their collective. They can exhale. And see, for me, the misread people had on that tweet, the timing was obviously bad, but the misread that people had on that tweet was that this was not about calling up white supremacists who want you to die. <laughs> this is about the average American actually doesn't care that much about politics. And we've been so divided for four years. And really what we care about is PTA and our kids' soccer matches and going out and having a beer with folks and all of that. And, and Trump has been an enormous problem and now he's gone. And that should allow us to actually reach out and be Americans more again. And look, I know how, I wrote a whole book on us versus them and how globalism has failed and how divided this country is. And you and I have been talking about this. But I, I thought that that would be um, a, a, a useful message to send, especially because so many people were in vindictive mode and so many people were in denial and butthurt mode. And I'm neither of those things. Um, so, and especially because the elections themselves were, were so divided. I mean, it's not like, I mean, everyone has something to be disappointed about. The Trump supporters have lost their president. They've lost their megaphone. The, the Democrats have lost seats in the House. They've lost uh, state legislatures. They've got a 6-3 Supreme Court against them, and they probably uh, still don't have the Senate. So this is an outcome that should make you think the only way we can do anything is if we start to work together at least a little. Did you at least note the almost immediate response that I wrote to my own tweet? I think I missed that. Did you really? What was your response? And look, because, I watched your Twitter feed like a hawk, sir. Yeah, but, th but this one was a big one because it performed well. <laughs> That's the measure. So here it was. It was 15 minutes later. And it's, I just looked it up while we were talking. And then I wrote, alternatively, or alternately, you can just tell me to f off. <laughs> If that's more cathartic, <laughs> I'm did. okay with it. I did see that. And here's the I beautiful thing that. is, is like 16,000 people liked the first tweet, 30,000 people like immediately could, the one thing we could all agree about, Democrat, Republican you to was, off. was telling me to f off. And I'm like, well, that's cool. You know, I mean, if you're going to own yourself, you might as well like really do it. That was my view. But seriously, with respect to the spirit of your comment, there are lots of folks hand-wringing on the progressive side, on the Biden side, who say some version of what you just said, and that we need to come to some understanding and we need to heal. And then some people on that side say, what are you talking about? We won. It's not just Trump voters who have been demonized, but we, urban dwellers, liberals, people who live on the coasts, we're people too. The cities are you know, bastions of uh, commerce. They provide for the country. They contribute to the GDP. And, you know, with impunity, Trump, even though Trump comes from a city, grew up in a city, made his fortune in a city, why don't they make some effort to understand us? Fair? Yeah. And I went after Megyn Kelly for that, for precisely that. And, and she responded and she was um, 
she was pretty clueless. We'll remind people about Megyn Kelly. Megyn Kelly went after Biden. Biden was offering a message of unity, basically saying in his speech the same thing that I said in my tweet a few hours later, which was, um, you know, I'm going to govern for, for people that voted for me, voted against me. And by the way, why don't you go and, you know, reach out to someone that uh, one of your neighbors that has a Trump flag and go talk to him. Uh, on their lawn. And I mean, people didn't drag Biden uh, the way they dragged me because I mean, you know, he's going to be the president. Uh, but uh, but it's the same point. And then, you know, Megyn Kelly comes out and says, spoken like someone who's been in his basement for the last year. Right. And, right. And, I, and I said, Megyn, you know, you're, you're an influencer that actually has a You've got a, 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 a reach that really matters does to she, a lot does of she Americans. Still? Yeah, she still does. Absolutely she does. She, I mean, she has an enormous following, even though she doesn't have a job, she still has an enormous following. There are a lot of people like that. Um, and and I just said, I, I, I think you need to lead by example. Honestly, I think that you can do better. And, uh, and, and, and that got a, a lot of responses. I mean, I don't, I don't think this message is only for the left. I mean, how, why is it that the left would have to, always has to turn the other cheek and reach out? I, th I think anyone in a position of power I'm not talking about folks that have been truly abused. I'm not talking about, I mean, my, my comment was not, you know, for, for someone that's been um, some black kid on the wrong side of police um, in an urban center in the United States. I, I'm talking about, you know, the average rank and file American who has been, you know, frankly, complacent and lazy over the last four years while all of this has been going on, on both sides of the political spectrum, and especially those with a following, especially those with some money, especially those who get listened to at the Thanksgiving table, everyone says, well, what, does, what do you have to say? Those are the people, no matter what their political inclinations, that have to do better. They just have to do better, and they're not. And I feel like you are. I mean, one of the reasons the things I really like about you, Preet, is, you know, you are, you have a political perspective. I agree with you sometimes. I don't agree with you all the time, but I feel like you actually have empathy. You care. You're authentic. You don't just take shots at people to make them feel bad um, at a political side. And I think that that's very, that's increasingly very rare in our country. Well, Twitter makes it worse. Look, you know, I've said from the beginning after Trump's election in the first place, that he was right about a number of things. He's Definitely. right about this, that there is a swamp. He's right that a lot of the system is rigged. And he's right that a lot of people have been forgotten. Those three things he is absolutely 100% right about. I don't think he's fixed any of those things, but some of those issues still remain the case. But, but to say that he hasn't done anything, right? I wanna, I wanna push back on that, because I agree on, with you. On those, well, look, he has caused, this is true, he has caused, as you see from the vote in 2020, a large section of the population to believe that he remembers them and has not forgotten about them. I don't think he has done much by way in, by way of deed to do that. He's done more by way of rhetoric. But if, if, if that's the concession you wanted me to give, I'll give that. I wanted to give a little more than that. Again, I, I, there's no way he's draining the swamp. He's, he's got a cabinet full of billionaires and private sector guys promoting their interests. But he has worked a hell of a lot harder to end the wars than Hillary Clinton would have, and then Obama Biden did. And I think that matters. He's also pushed really hard to limit immigration into the United States. And as much as you and I think that more immigration is good, 
there are a lot of people in the United States that do not because they don't feel like they're benefiting from it. Why would you take care of these other people when you're not taking care of me? Then you've got him pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Obama tried to get done. I think for a lot of Americans, they have very just, very strong justifications for why there should not be more free trade deals unless you're gonna do something to address their needs and interests. And I'm not even talking about, you know, the, the subsidies for the farmers that, you know, the coal workers and the rest, which were obvious giveaways that were kind of stupid and bad for the country and inefficient. I'm talking about things that legitimately, if you were a Trump voter back in 2016, you look back four years later and you say, yeah, he made good on those things. He also works really hard to own the libs and say the mainstream media is full of it. And they love that. I don't find that constructive at all. It's unpresidential. It's not becoming our leader. But I, I mean, I'm just saying that I think that there are many strong and legitimate reasons why someone that voted in 2016 would vote for Trump in 2020. And it doesn't mean there are white supremacists. And, I, and I, I've just been stunned. Although there are how some. many friends of mine believe that the only people that support Trump are racist. But as somebody, some people might formulate, the racists tend to support Trump, fair or not. Absolutely. But I mean, those are, I mean, those, those the, the causality works in two right. completely directions. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, but I, I want to say like, I, I think that I Islamic extremists um, probably voted overwhelmingly for Obama as opposed to McCain or Romney in the United States. I don't think that reality in any way reflects the fact that um, he should be tarred with that. Now, it is absolutely true that Trump has dog whistled for racism a lot, but conflating that with the idea that all Trump supporters are racist is insane. And, right, but, and I, but, but that's but, an important, important caveat that you just mentioned. That's right. It's not just the fact that some people who think a certain way are drawn to Trump, is that he invites their approval, he invites their support, he sometimes more than dog whistles. That's right. And, 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 and that and sticks I, in and, people's and craw and causes problem. people to have, I'm not saying this is right, causes some people to think, well, if the leader of the country and the leader of the party, you know, thrives on that support and both sides things after Charlottesville, it causes them to have a, you know, a negative view, maybe overgeneralized of Trump supporters. Of everyone that supports him. And I, and I think that the, that's a serious problem in our country. I think one of the reasons that the tweet did so badly is, I mean, I have no problem with people, I myself call Trump unfit for office, uh, the worst character of any leader I've seen in my life in the United States. I mean, authoritarian tendencies, all of these things. You wanna demonize Trump, have at it. But the idea that you can use that to broad brush 70 plus million Americans is crazy and so damaging. And yet it seems to be where a very large piece of the population is right now. You know, I have always been drawn to maybe it's idealistic, drawn to politicians who both by action, but but also in their rhetoric, talk about unity. I mean, Barack Obama comes on the stage, uh, the national stage in 2004, and Joe Biden, 16 years later, basically quotes from that Obama speech on a, re on a regular basis leading up to the election day. There are no red states, no blue states, they're just the United States of America. And so I appreciate and cherish Biden's words about unity and about healing. But it's kind of a controversial term. One of the other things that Megyn Kelly said, right, was, you know, after bashing Trump supporters like maniacs for a long period of time, now you want to heal because you won the election? Are we ready to heal yet? Does there have to be a period of examination and reflection before we can sort of adopt bromides like let's heal? How does it sound to the 70 million Americans who didn't vote for Joe Biden 
so let's leave the United States for a second. So the, the Greece has just gone through a depression, a depression that was worse than the depression, both in, in scale and depth from what we experienced in the Great Depression 100 plus years ago. That is extraordinary. And yet, and, and one could argue that it was caused in significant part by the rapaciousness and the unwillingness to treat as fellow humans, the Greeks, by Germany and by others in Northern Europe. And yet today, there is a healing that is going on. And there's a healing that's going on because we're in the middle of coronavirus and the Europeans are acting like all Europeans are in the same boat. They're reaching out. It makes a difference. And so the thing that would have made me happiest is if Biden had been able to pull off a Senate majority so that you get a $3 trillion plus stimulus that includes big money for infrastructure, includes big money for municipalities and for states, and allows Biden to actually govern with the resources that shows that he is a president for the red and blue states at a time that the people really need it in the, in the teeth of the worst crisis of our lifetimes. And of course, that is not gonna happen. That is not gonna happen. But I, I absolutely think that you can begin healing if you have some policies that show that the leaders of the United States really care. They're really committed to making a difference. They're not just talking at you, but lying. And, and that's a problem for us. Pick one policy that is feasible to accomplish with the Republican Senate that Joe Biden could champion that would cause some subset of those 70 million people to think, you know what? It wasn't just talk about healing and unity, but Joe Biden means it and he hears us and sees us too. You certainly you want to see at least extended unemployment support. Um, it's absolutely critical. We need to make sure that all these people that are facing getting evicted from their homes um, or defaulting uh, on their debt, I, I think that's a serious problem. And, uh, you know, it's the rubber's going to hit the road for a bunch of these people in really short order. So he needs to do that. And if that means that they need to hold their nose and compromise on a bunch of other things that otherwise they don't want to spend, they got to do it. They got to try. Uh, again, unless unless they take both seats in Georgia and they're going to fight like hell to do it, um, in which case they'll be able to push it through themselves. Um, look, I, look, I'll tell you the thing I am much more, because this is a governance, I'm quite negative on divided governance in the U.S. next year. I think in many ways, Biden will be the weakest president since Carter in 76. But I also saw the news that just came out on the vaccine from Pfizer. And if we've got vaccines that are 90% effective and they are rolling out at the beginning of the Biden administration, you may not get $3 trillion in stimulus, but those vaccines may well represent a 2% GDP bump next year for the United States. That's massive. And that, that allows you to get your kids back to school. That allows people to go back to work in places where you can't socially distance. That gets us back to normal by the end of Biden's first year. If you can do that, wages are gonna go up. And, and then you've got more flexibility. So that's a, big you know, if. That, it's a big if, it's a big if, but you ask what's something that can happen. Yeah. That's something we can be hopeful about. Yeah. Do you, want to, do you want to go in and jointly invest in companies that are building refrigerators that can go to minus 80 degrees Celsius? We're going to need them globally, huh? I mean, this is something that the United States will have very little problem getting those to our people. I mean, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't have PPE 
some months ago, right? We were running out of masks and toilet paper. Ian, we ran out of toilet paper in the stores. So I don't mean to sound negative, but I'm very worried that you'll have a vaccine, but not a lot of vaccinations. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm bet, I feel better about that. I mean, we, we got PPE up and running um, within a matter of weeks and no hospitals in the United States ended up having to triage the way they did in North and Italy, for example. And for everyone that has said that Trump has mishandled the coronavirus, let's be clear that the second wave that Europe is experiencing right now, both per capita in terms of cases, hospitalizations and deaths, considerably worse than the United States today. So this is a hard disease to deal with. And I, 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 I wanna be optimistic. In the last eight months, mortality rates of this disease that we have never seen before are down 30 to 50%. That's true. Because we've learned a lot and that's gonna continue. So if you add that, I'll tell you, I'm actually a little bit worried. Remember, Trump lost because of coronavirus. If coronavirus had been handled a little bit better or if the timing had been different, Trump probably would have won. I am worried that uh, Biden and his new coronavirus task force staffed by some mutual friends of yours and mine um, are gonna focus so much on the epidemiology, they don't also engage with the economists. And uh, let's face it, if 2020 was mostly about the epidemiology, 2021 is probably gonna be mostly about the economic knock-on effects. And we have to be erring more towards, balancing more towards opening economies when mortality rates are going down, when we have more effective treatment and when we have vaccines, we have to do that. And so I, I think that there is a balance here. And right now it's red state versus blue state. It's, you know, lock it all down versus, you know, White House super spreader event. That is not a comfortable place for our country to be. You know, you said that you spent much of your time, if not most of your time thinking about things outside of the United States. And of course, I've made you talk mostly about domestic policy. But let me let me ask you this. So the fact that Biden will be weakened in part because of a Republican majority in the Senate, which is likely to be so, is that going to make Biden a foreign policy focused president? And if so, how do you think that will look? It's interesting. Biden is much more different from Trump in domestic policy, but also very constrained. Biden is much less constrained in foreign policy but in many ways he's aligned with a lot of Trump's policies. I mean, certainly in terms of the relatively hawkish stance on China, certainly in terms of less US military footprint, not like Hillary at all, Biden's someone that will want to end that war in Afghanistan. Um, I don't think that trade relations are gonna be all that different under Biden. You know he supports the USMCA, you know he supports the South Korea deal, all that kind of thing. The things that will be very different under Biden in terms of foreign policy, I would say there are two. The first is the equivalent of executive orders, but internationally to just rejoin multilateral institutions. So, you know, 76 days later, we rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Um, we rejoin the World Health Organization. We join COVAX for vaccine development and distribution. Um, we rejoin the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement with the Russians. These are fairly significant deals that will help to build confidence with allies of the United States. I think it matters. Secondly, there will be a honeymoon with Biden simply because so many foreign leaders felt like they were walking on eggshells when they met with Trump. They publicly would wanna say good things because he's so much more powerful, 
but you know, they, they viewed him as someone that could go off at any moment, that could explode. That would be a real problem for them. That's why the Mexican president still hasn't actually congratulated Biden because he knows how vulnerable he is if Trump decides that he wants to take a whack, just can't, can't afford it. And so I think the Mexicans, the Canadians, the Japanese, the South Koreans, almost all the Europeans, literally that's, that's most of the American allies will just have a honeymoon for the first, second, third summit meetings they have with Biden. Doesn't mean they don't still have problems. Doesn't mean they're not angry at the United States for not doing things. Obama, Biden were criticized very heartily for leading from behind, for not reacting effectively on Russian intervention in Ukraine or on Assad in Syria or so many other things. But there will be more normalization. And I think that's a helpful thing. Climate will be the area that Biden will try to make his mark to the greatest degree internationally. And 2021 is gonna be a very big year for big international announcements to improve focus on climate. Can you talk to me about Saudi Arabia? Sure. What's that gonna look like? Oh, MBS has had a very close personal relationship with Jared, has had a very good relationship with Trump. Uh, the Saudis definitely see themselves as one of the losers from Biden winning. I think that the United States will care less about maintaining a big military footprint, um, will care less, certainly if Biden's focusing mostly on climate and we are energy you know, more or less independent now as the United States, why does Saudi Arabia matter as much? Plus, most importantly, Biden will try to rejoin the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal. And that's something that the Saudis strongly oppose. Most American allies support it. The Saudis, I mean, one of the reasons you got these, the Abraham Accords, which are the, the normalization of relations between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain, not yet Saudi Arabia, but the Saudis are even allowing Israeli planes through their airspace. That was in large part because Iran is considered to be the principal geopolitical concern in the region. So Biden comes in and suddenly starts allowing the Iranians to produce more oil, tries to rejoin, take some of those sanctions off. The Saudis are gonna feel like they're in a really difficult position because the future, I mean, the UAE has diversified their economy immensely. Saudi Arabia is still mostly about oil and petrochem, and that is that is not our fuel of the future. It's, it's not the way you want your country to grow. If memory serves at the beginning of the Obama administration, there was all sorts of talk, some of which affected cases that we were trying to bring in the Southern District relating to, to Russian spying, but there was all this talk about a reset with Russia. Not gonna happen, right? Nope, not even <laughs> It's gonna be the opposite. No, it's not gonna be the opposite because even though Trump personally wanted a reset with Putin, his administration did not, his cabinet did not. Um, there were whistleblowers inside the bureaucracy that did not. The Republicans in the GOP did not. The journalists were doing their damnedest to make it hard. Um, I, I would argue that actual US policy towards Russia under Trump has, if anything, gotten slightly more hawkish. The US now provides missiles to Ukraine. This was, of course, a big piece of uh, the Javelin missiles of the, um, of the impeachment uh, case against Trump, um, something he tried to delay but couldn't do. U.S. sanctions against Russia um, for uh, specifically for their intervention in Southeast Ukraine have continued um, to escalate over the last four years. Biden will continue in that direction. But I don't think it's going to change very much. The actual policy between those two administrations on Russia will be virtually identical. Do you think Trump runs again 
2024, or at least doesn't take it off the table for a while. Why would he take it off the table? No reason. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I think there's a decent chance that he announces in the near future. He might, though. I mean, I like the, I mean, if he decides to buy OANN, how could he not do an apprentice, an actual apprentice for the Republican nominee in 2024? Do we need to explain to people what OANN is? It is the One America News Network. One America News Network. It is um, far more uniformly pro-Trump than Fox News. It's like, take Tucker Carlson and, and Sean Hannity, and then imagine they get really drunk and it goes until <laughs> 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. That is, that's your morning edition of OANN. In Vegas. Definitely in Vegas. Definitely to throw in some Alec Jones. I mean, OANN is, I, I think watching five minutes of OANN every once in a while is, is amusing. And I, and, and I think that makes not me a terrifying, bad person. Just I think it makes me a bad person because I should not take amusement in people that are so obviously misguided. I shouldn't. That's a bad, that's a bad characteristic that I have. It is, but you know, it's it endearing. Is. But really? like, you know, it, it just seems to me. No, not really. I was oh, trying okay. to say something nice. That's too bad. I, um, I appreciated that for, for a second. Our, for our listeners. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, I, I've said this before. I really think that Trump's ambition in life was not necessarily to be the president, but to be the most talked about person on earth. He's in it for, for attention, not, not achievement, not accomplishment, not patriotism. But it's hard it's to do that from attention. jail, right? It is. And we so what's he going to do about it? I mean, I got to ask wait you this. So what's he going to do about that? Wait a second. Wait a second. What? And so okay. part of the reason why I think he must run, or at least look like he's running, is that immediately makes him the center of attention. And you know, is he going to cede that stuff? I, I said yesterday, is he going to cede the spotlight to like someone like Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton? No. That's horrifying from it's his horrifying. perspective, right? It's horrifying. And he sort of like thinks he might clear the field for a little while. I mean, look how afraid people are of offending his base. And he could be still. the first president since FDR to win three elections in a row. <laughs> right? You're being facetious there. But that's what he's going to say. Right? I mean, that, that absolutely. I mean, that can be his slogan. You know, going back to the initial question of the whole show, in a universe in which Donald Trump is actively suggesting that he's going to run against Biden and recapture the White House in 2024, how much worse does that make this whole problem of divisiveness? Like, how are, you, how are you going to have unity and healing if the guy who lost is out there not just talking smack, but talking smack as the, as the putative future candidate for president? That's why I, that's yet one more reason why I think Biden is going to be such a weak president. It's so unfortunate, but it's the country is so divided and Trump is not going away his ability to drive an agenda, his ability. I mean, you saw Eric Trump came out and basically told these Republicans in name only, rhinos, these are our voters. These are not your voters. They're Trump's voters. And Trump is wielding his voters as a club over a democratic institution that has basically ceded power to him the Republican party. And that's, that's a problem for them. I mean, this election has gone really well for the Republicans because they've won basically everything except the presidency. And Trump never was a Republican anyway. He's not a Democrat either. He's just his own thing. And so to the extent that they can get rid of him, that would be useful for the future of the Republican party. But as you just suggested, I don't think they can unless he ends up in jail. And I, I wonder, I mean, this is the question I have for you is uh, leaving aside the issue of pardoning 
for federal crimes. How credible are these New York cases that are going to be coming up against him? And, and could he actually, do you think it's plausible he could end up in prison before 2024? Yeah, look, I think it's plausible. I, I as a former prosecutor, hearing people on the outside who didn't see the grand jury material, who didn't see the documents, who didn't see the subpoena returns, I would sometimes be amused at their speculation about how strong a likelihood there was of a particular person in the public eye being charged or not charged. So I know there are lots of times when, you know, we were investigating someone and people thought, you know, no way would that happen. And it did. And vice versa, too. So with that caveat, I I don't know all the details of what's going on in the investigation by Cy Vance. I would not be shocked if nothing ever came of them, because that's the nature of those kinds of inquiries. I would also not be shocked if there was some kind of tax charge or, or bank fraud charge that is brought. I also think on this question that you didn't ask, but that keeps getting asked, you know, w- what happens in the future, putting the pardon possibility aside for a moment, the self-pardon aside for a moment, does the Biden administration, you know, look forward uh, or do they look backward and try to figure out accountability for potential bad acts by the president? And I, I don't know that they're going to have the luxury of making that decision on their own because revelations have a momentum of their own, right? And it's one thing that we all know about the second volume of the Mueller report, and there's a credible basis for charges to be brought against the president based just on that. And you can make the argument, Biden might, or his attorney general might, that, you know what, that's been aired. There was an impeachment proceeding. It's kind of old news. Let's move on and not get mired in this because we believe in unity and healing. That's one thing, which will, by that itself will be very controversial and people will be very upset about it on the progressive side. It's quite a different matter if in the beginning of February or even earlier than that, you have what I predict is, you know, there's a reasonable likelihood of people from the Trump administration coming out and blowing the whistle on all sorts of other stuff that nobody has any idea of yet. And by the way, a lot of that could be stuff that's happening in the next 74 days. Sure, absolutely. And I I fully expect that's going to happen, right? I mean, there are books. And and now, so now imagine the world, you, you wake up on February 1, Biden's talked about, let's assume he's talked about healing moving forward. And now there's on the front page of the New York Times and the front page of the Washington Post, you know, very sort of bad stories about destruction of documents, about, uh, you know, uh, false testimony and all sorts of other things that Trump and his people might have done that nobody had any idea of before. The momentum in favor of opening an investigation in some fashion on the federal side is going to be enormous. So I don't know that you're going to have the luxury of being able to say we're going to move on or not. Because because the record is not closed. It's an open record. I, I, th- I think the legacy, I mean, even though uh, there's, in my view, zero chance that Biden doesn't become president on January 20th, I think the legacy of the last four years is going to be so much more toxic and problematic than people presently presume. And again, there's, there's no other advanced industrial democracy in the world that has this problem right now. We're the only one. We just happen to be the biggest. That's a serious, serious problem, especially when you still have all of this displacement and crisis going on. Ian Bremmer, president and founder of the Eurasia Group, G Zero Media. I love you, man. Same. Good, there you go. He can't even say it. I, lo- I love you. I love you too, Ian. It's too hard. It's too hard for him. It's okay. <laughs> I'm working on pre. Takes time. My conversation with Ian Bremmer continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So folks, it's been a pretty eventful 
week or eight days. We had an election. We had a delay in the projection of who was going to win. And we have a delay in the losing party conceding the loss, as we have been discussing. But I want to mention something that I wrote about last week, last Thursday, in between the day of the election and the time on Saturday when Joe Biden was projected to be the winner of the Electoral College. And it's a note I write every week to Cafe Insiders. And I, I made an observation. I said, you know, like me, I'm sure you're all glued to the news, waiting for the moment that Joe Biden secures enough votes to be declared the president-elect. I'm very confident that this will happen soon. And then I also said, and yet among many long-suffering Democrats, there is no ecstasy, no euphoria. And I said, that's for a couple of reasons. One, the Senate may not be won by Democrats. And two, it looks like it was a relatively close election. And I think people wanted a humiliating repudiation of Trump and Trumpism. But the reason I mention it is, there was this feeling of kind of glumness, even though it looked like Biden was very, very likely, if not almost certainly, to be declared the winner. Because then when we got to Saturday, all over the country, supporters of Biden, when the AP and NBC News and Fox News and CNN and all the networks called it for Biden, when the vote tally in, in Pennsylvania became too much for Trump to overcome, guess what we saw? We saw a lot of ecstasy. We saw a lot of euphoria. People celebrating in the streets, people honking their horns, people dancing, people singing. I've never seen anything like it. So I want to admit error that um, my conclusion of the lack of those two intense feelings of ecstasy, euphoria, and joy were missing maybe for the few days until the result became clear. But then boy, did we see it last Saturday. And I think that's a good thing. And I think there was some catharsis in it. And I think some people, myself included, didn't even fully understand emotionally, although maybe they did intellectually, but not emotionally, how much they needed Trump to lose and how much better it is for the country. And there was a nationwide exhale and relief. And that's all good. And that was all deserved. And that was all legitimate. In the three or four days since, because maybe that's the nature of our DNA, there has been a little bit of a return to concern and anxiety, even though the result was great. And that's because Donald Trump won't concede. And that's because some people still think there's a way for Trump to prevail. Given that most senators are taking Trump's side, given that the Attorney General of the United States seems to have issued guidance that caused the lead election lawyer, public servant election lawyer in the Justice Department to resign from his position. And all I want to say is, I get that. And I get that we have been trained to expect the worst from Donald Trump. And if he had his druthers and he had the ability to do so in our system, to steal the election, he would. But I think it's important to say, based on everything, and I'm just one person, and you know, I'm not infallible, but based on everything I see with respect to the Department of Justice, with respect to how electors work, with respect to the various lawsuits, most of which have been dismissed and many of which are outright laughable, that the Trump campaign has sought to bring up to it, including the crazy press conference by Rudy Giuliani at that spot called Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Notwithstanding all of that, I don't see any way that he's going to get the job done, that Donald Trump is going to get the job done. These are face-saving mechanisms. These are ego-soothing machinations. And at the end of the day, and by the end of the day, I mean noon on January 20th, 2021, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to be sworn in as the next president and vice president of the United States. And there will be twists and turns between now and then. And there will be moments where people will be anxious and will be tweeting and emailing and saying, can this happen? And the answer almost certainly will be no. So hold on to that feeling of elation if you were one of those people who wanted Joe Biden to win, because it's deserved and it will come to pass.
Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ian Bremmer. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.